If you will, take your Bibles this morning and turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. We've been working our way through this uh, uh, Gospel of John, and uh, the series kind of happened by accident. I became enamored back at the end of June, 1st of July, with the first five verses of John, and I read those. The Lord spoke to me through those, and so then I went to the next few verses and the next few verses, and here we are three months into uh, the Gospel of John. He has so much to say to us. Today, a message entitled, Let's Talk About Jesus. On the screen it says, Who is Jesus? And that's a question we want to answer today as we talk about Jesus. It is my deep conviction that we have kind of a skewed view of Jesus, as you will see as we work through the message today. If you have found if you have found uh, uh, John chapter 2, would you stand to honor the reading of his holy, holy word? We pick up in verse 13. And the scripture says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. And he told all those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's Psalm 69. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. A message entitled, Let's Talk About Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it speaks to us. I pray that today that we will allow you to permeate our being, permeate our hearts, And teach us about your son. I pray that you will throw out incorrect concepts about who and what Jesus is. And you will replace it with the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I begin with a question this morning. When you hear the word Jesus, when you hear the name Jesus, what comes to your mind? What? What pictures come to your mind? What images come to your mind? One man said, I've pictured Jesus like a Mr. Rogers with a beard. Another one said, um, the picture I have of Jesus is a gentle man with children, kind of like Mother Teresa. Now, some of you have already been offended. Well, hang on, I'm going to offend you more because I want to build a case right now about the incorrect, incorrect concepts and images of who Jesus is today. And I'm going to stay right here because I don't want to misquote, except for the fact 
When you think about Jesus, and obviously we have no photography of Jesus, but when you see about, when you think about Jesus, here's what you see, all these images here with children, with a baby, goes on and on. Because, you know, here's the thing, Jesus was a kind man, he was nice. He was a good man. He was nice. He was a righteous man, and he was nice. He was a tidy man. He was nice. He was a well-groomed man, and did I say he was nice? That's kind of our concept of Jesus today. You see, the, the modern church in America has painted this picture of Jesus, and we very rarely see the masculine side of Jesus. I read that... Jesuit priest Patrick Arnold lamented that Jesus is often depicted today as a bearded lady. You might not like this. You might not like what I'm saying, and you may not like this concept of what's going on with with our concept of Jesus. But Dr. Woody Davis asked a hundred men why they didn't go to church. And the number one answer was churches for women, wimps, and children. Ten years ago, David Murrow wrote a book that today has become a movement. Look it up on the Internet. It's entitled, Why Men Hate Going to Church. And a common fear among men today is that if they sell out to Jesus, if they sell out to the church, they will either turn into a nerd or a nut. In fact, Lee Strobel you ever read any of Lee Strobel's writing? A great Christian apologist used to be an atheist. And this is what he said. Before I was saved, I would look at the church and think, boy, I never want to end up like that. Back then, he continues, I saw Christianity as being out of touch and living a vanilla lifestyle devoid of any challenge, excitement, or plain fun. One poll identified an average church member in these terms, a 50-year-old, married, well-educated, employed female. ABC did one that come to find out the average worshiper was an older black female who lived in the South. Whether you like what I'm saying or not, we better pay attention because of all the world belief systems, of all the world's religions, if you will. Christianity is the one religion devoid of men has a shortage of men, and at the same time, let me just shock you. Men are leaving homes and country and lives to join Islam. Because Islam touches the heart of the man, the masculine man. Never forget what John Eldridge taught us 20 years ago in Wild at Heart. A man has a battle to fight, a beauty to win, and an adventure to live. And when you try to take those away from him, you rip out the masculine heart. The modernized church, the the American church, has watered down church in so much that it doesn't even resemble the first century church. Rick Warren tells us that 80% of American churches are family union churches where the greatest commandment is simply to be nice. And the pastor's job, instead of being a prophet that preaches the unashamed, unadulterated Word of God, the pastor's job has become the the job of keeping the the peace, keeping them pacified, keeping them in the pews, and keeping them being paying customers. That's America's church today. 
a far cry from the first century church. Where you see, in the first century church, they were renegades, they were rebels, they were insurrectionists because these men, a few women, but these mainly were men, they had met Jesus, they had trusted in Jesus, they had believed in Jesus, they had sold their souls to Jesus, and they were about changing a culture that was going down the tubes. Their heart, their soul, their passion, their ministry was for Jesus. He was on the top of their list. Where is Jesus today? Is He on the top of our list? Maybe we misunderstand Jesus. As I read this story, there are three things that leaped out at me a couple of weeks ago like I'd never seen before. Three characteristics about who He is and what He's doing. And I think we need to come to face with it today. Who is Jesus? Let's just talk about Him a little bit. First of all, I'm going to give you three attributes. If you're on the device, you should have something. If you're on the back of your bulletin, you can write down something. The first thing I would suggest to you that Jesus, he is a finder. He's a finder. He finds people. He finds things. He came to the temple, and in verse 12, he found those. You know why he's a finder? Because he's a seeker. He's always seeking people. He's seeking to find people, to discover people. But I'm going to tell you this morning two things I just want to imprint in your psyche today. The two things Jesus finds. He finds principles to convey. And he finds people to change. Principles to convey and people to change. Let's run around those two things just for a second to see why Jesus and what Jesus finds. First of all, the principles to convey. He came into the temple and he found things not the way it should be in the temple. He found this house. It was supposed to be a house of prayer where it's supposed to be a house of worship where it's supposed to be a house of sacrifice. He found that it had been compromised and he wanted to teach and change that by teaching correct principles. But he didn't just do it here. This was the life of Jesus. Consider, let me just give you one example. Because when Jesus begins teaching, he's a master teacher, and he doesn't just let things go. He sees it to the end. For instance, Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, a man came to Jesus and he said, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you remember that encounter? And so Jesus begins teaching principles there. But he doesn't just teach one. The first principle was the law. Keep the law. And he turned to him. He said, Have you, do you know the law? Have you kept the law? He said, because Jesus didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill the law. Most of us here can recite the Ten Commandments. Can you recite the Ten Commandments? Whether you can or cannot, do you think you've kept the Ten Commandments? If you think you've kept the Ten Commandments, we'll have the altar open just a little bit so you can repent. He pointed him to the Ten Commandments. He said, you've got to keep those. He said, well, I've kept those all my life. Sound like a Baptist, didn't it? Well, Jesus knew better than that. Jesus knew better than that. But he knew that principle was the law tells us who we are. And so when the man failed to see the error of his ways that he had not kept the Ten Commandments, Jesus then raised the level. Are you listening? And he says, he teaches the next principle of one more thing. He said, he said sir, he said, one thing you lack. 
If Jesus was to appear, were to appear in this worship center and look at you today, what thing would he say that you lacked? You see, Jesus has a way of seeing what we really lack. It can be you haven't surrendered. You know, for this man, it was his wealth. And Jesus said, okay, since you say you kept all of this and you put everything in place, go sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. What is that one thing in your life that you won't turn loose of? That's what Jesus was teaching. He wasn't telling us to all be broke. He was trying to point out to this man that there was something more important to think to that man than Jesus was. But one thing. It could be your wealth. You could be just like that man. It, it could be your attitude. It could be your talk, your speech. It could be your schedule. It could be your family. What one thing do you like lack in selling out to Jesus? He taught the one more thing principle. Well, you know what the man did, don't you? He turned and walked away. Because in point of fact, he loved his money. He loved his comfort. He loved his wealth better than anything else. And he wasn't going to turn it loose. What is there in your life that you're going to hang on to and leave Jesus out? But Jesus wasn't through. The man walked away. Now, by the way, if he'd have been a Baptist pastor, if Jesus had been a Baptist pastor, he'd have probably said to that rich young guy, whoa, 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 you got a lot of money. You come back here. We can, we can work this out. But not Jesus. Jesus let him walk away. And when he walked away, he turned around and saw the surprised look on the disciples' faces who had witnessed this encounter. And he, then he said, he raised it to another level and taught them another principle. And he said, it's the eye of the needle principle. He said, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, did you, you know why that is? One more thing. One thing stands in the way of you selling out to Jesus. By the way, teenagers, please listen. Our Lord Jesus doesn't take second place. It's all or nothing. You're in or out. And so he teaches this eye of the needle principle, and now he looks... And they're aghast. They're astounded. They're amazed. They can't believe it. And so one of them said, well, Jesus, how in the world can anybody be saved? And Jesus wasn't through. You know what he said? He gave them the impossible principle. You listen? This is important. With man, it is impossible. To receive eternal life. But with God, nothing is impossible. And did you get that? If you're in this building today and you're thinking, I am going to work my way to heaven. My goods are going to outweigh my bad. I'm going to treat people right. And I'm going to be okay. Listen, with man, it's impossible. With God, nothing's impossible. If you got that one more thing, God's the one that can take care of that thing. Jesus taught these principles, and now he gets into the temple, and he's wanting to teach the principles to get the house that we call the temple back in order. These guys knew the principles. 
He found principles to teach. He always found principles to convey. But he found people to change. Just write it down. Jesus is looking and he's finding people to change. Now, if you look back in chapter 1, we spoke on it several weeks ago. In verse 43 of chapter 1, it says, he found Philip. So we know that Jesus is looking to find people. But when he looks to find people, he looks to change people because he gave Philip that call that he gives to every person that he has ever met, every person in this room. Here's what he said to Philip. It's very complicated. Are you listening? I don't want to talk over your head. Are you listening? Here's the call. Follow me. Did I confuse anybody? Follow me. That's the call. Well, Brother Jerry, I follow him, and he's never called me to to do anything different than I normally do. Listen, it is impossible to live life the way you've been living your life and follow Jesus at the same time. I.e., Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John had to leave their boats, had to leave their nets, had to leave their fishing, and follow him. Matthew, a, a tax collector with a wealthy Business had to leave his table and his taxes to follow Jesus. It is inconsistent with the love, with our Lord and His call for you to say, well, He came into my life, but He made no change. Jesus does not come into a life and leave you the same. He changes you. So the question comes, has Jesus found you? If He's found you, has He changed you? He's a finder. He's a finder. He found me where I was. By the way, when you look at those men who were selling sheep and and ox and pigeons, that reminds us that he finds us wherever we are, whether we're doing right or wrong, good or bad. Whether our spirits or attitudes are in line with God or not, he finds us, he sees us, he knows us, and he's looking for us. He's a finder. Now, let me upset you. He's not only a finder. Jesus is a fighter. Oops. I even knew as as this kind of ran around in my head that it would uh, rub some people the wrong way. He is a fighter. I mean, after all, you heard what I said earlier, didn't you? I mean, he's good, and he's nice. He's sensitive, and he's nice. He's righteous, and he's nice. He's helpful, and he's nice. He's loving, and did I say he was nice? That's kind of our our concept today. So how does being a fighter fit into this nice man, Jesus? Let me tell you a couple of things that he fights against. He fights, you know those principles he's trying to convey? He fights against broken principles, which is what he saw. He fights against broken principles. But you make no mistake. Are you listening? I know you're going to get mad at the messenger. That's fine. But just take to heart the message. He also fights against stubborn, hard-headed, stiff-necked, prideful people. If I were going to be to write this out in an alliterative, <laughs> my Mississippi background is about to come through in my alliterative way, I would tell you this is what he fights against. 
broken principles and bullheaded people. And he came into the temple and he found both. He came into a temple that was supposed to be set aside for prayer, supposed to be set aside for worship, and now it had become a business. Those principles had been violated, and he found people, those men there, who knew better and decided that they knew better than God and his word. And so they set up business and began to sell in God's house. And let me just, as I read this, this is one of two times that Jesus walked into the temple. And he got so angry, are you listening, angry, that he reached and grabbed the first thing he could find. It was a group of cords, and he wound them together. And he made them into a whip. And you know how I know he was angry? Because he would have never separated those Jews from their money, Mike, had he not been angry. And you see, he got angry, and he took that whip, and he separated those guys from their sin. Now, are you listening? Jesus fights against sin pervading our lives. He fights, he fights against sin taking over our lives. And he will do whatever is required to separate us from our sin, even die. He will give his life to separate us from our sin. He will go to the cross to separate our sin. But on this day, in this way, he was not going to die. But what he was going to do, he was going to separate righteousness and unrighteousness. This day, he was going to fight for righteousness and for truth. This day, he was going to fight to return the Father's house to a house of prayer, to a house of honor for the Heavenly Father. And I just want to make this distinction. Jesus wasn't a Baptist. He didn't fight over his preferences. He fought over spiritual principles. When I, when I see this, every time I read this story, whether it's here in John, this second chapter of John, or whether it's in the listed in the last week, whenever I see these two incidents, I'm reminded, I'm going to tell you what I'm reminded of in the context of why Jesus got angry and why Jesus did what he did. I'm reminded of 20, 30 years ago when James Dobson, y'all know who James Dobson is? Focus on the family. I'm reminded of the first video I saw of James Dobson. He was teaching parents in kind of an intimate setting, and somebody said, do you believe in corporal punishment? If I'd have been him, I'd have said, for my kids? No, not corporal, but capital punishment. I do. No, I'm teasing. Corporal punishment. And he, this is what he said. I'll never forget it. It's burned. It's etched in my memory. He said, you know, not everything rises to the level of corporal punishment. Not everything does. And part of our problem is we've been, we have advocated corporal punishment for everything. He said, but I don't believe in it for everything. He said, but there are some things that you really need to, you really need to take hold of and you need to apply corporal punishment. He said, in fact, here's what I'll tell you. Just a, just a rule for you to know. Teenagers, don't charge me. Don't strangle me. Okay is that if your kid comes out looking for a fight, you are to oblige him, and you shouldn't let him win. Now, did you hear that? And you shouldn't let him win. Here's what I see in that temple. They came out looking for a fight. They had broken the principles. They were, listen, they weren't dumb. They knew what the Scripture said. They weren't dumb. 
He obliged them with a fight. Make no mistake about it. Our Lord Jesus will, will fight every time for your soul, for my soul. He will fight against sin. He will fight against Satan. He will fight against hell for you and for me. He's a finder and he's a fighter. But here's the third one. He's a fixer. He's a fixer. We got some men in this church that are great fixers. We went on a mission trip. Gosh, I just wish I had a... I hate to say this because I'll never leave it down. I wish I had an nth the knowledge that that Jerry and uh, Jack and Van and, uh, uh, and Rodney have. James. I mean, I, I, I'm just... Man, these guys can fix just about anything. But here's what I want to say to you this morning. Of all the things our Lord Jesus does, fixing tops the list. He doesn't always fix things for you or me like we want them fixed. Did you hear that? Let me say that again. He always fixes things. He just may not fix them like you want them fixed. But never forget, he's God. You're not. His ways and his thoughts and his plans are higher and more complete than yours. And he fixes them. He will fix us for time and eternity. So what's he fixing here? Explain this to us, Brother Jerry. Well, let me see if I can. I see the time's getting away from us. So let me see if I can. If you take a trip back through the Old Testament, what you discover is that God set up the system of sacrifice in the temple. And to offer a sacrifice, your sacrifice had to be yours had to be spotless or clean, had to be offered from you, not bought. That means when they came to the Passover, they herded sheep or goats, and it was sheep, goats, ox, um, lambs, um, doves, pigeons. So you had to bring those from your lot. It was a matter of giving to God. It was a matter of returning to God. It was a matter of sacrifice. And now I don't understand how, how, the, how the people in the temple got set up. I can use my glorified imagination. Here's what I suggest to you, that, that perhaps one day, very innocently, a family was coming, and the little lamb that they were bringing fell off a cliff, died, and they got to town, and they were so distraught because they didn't have something to sacrifice. So a businessman stepped up and said, I got a lamb, and I'll sell him to you. So they bought it very innocently, and they, and they offered it, and that businessman, being a businessman, goes, hey, have I got a deal for you. You don't have to bring the lambs anymore. You don't have to sacrifice by bringing them across the country. You just come here, and I'll sell them to you. Well, if one did it, then others did it. Y'all got what I'm saying? And so now you had the, uh, the sheep uh, table, and you had the uh, goat table, and you had the ox table, and... Over here for the poor people, you had the pigeon and the dove table. And so people could come and buy there. And then the temple people, the finance team, got sorry, Alice. The finance team got involved and they said, well, I don't know how we can make more money. Let's invent a temple script. And so now down at the far end was, were the money changers. And it was just a line you got in. Now, what are the money changers? Now, how many of you have ever been to a fair? Could I see your hands just to make sure that you're awake? You've been to a fair and you walked up to that booth and you go, I want to play. 
And they go, we don't take money here. You got to go down there to the ticket booth. And so you go down there to the ticket booth and you give them your American coin, which is no good in a fair. And they give you a ticket, which is a temple script. Now, here's your problem is that when the money changers changed the money, they had a huge fee on it that went kicked back to the temple. Y'all got the picture now? So when you came in, you had to take your money to the to the money changers. They had changed it, make their money, and then you go down here and select which one you wanted. And so now you have all these folks set up business in the temple, and that never was the way it was designed. It was a broken system. You see, here was the thing. They had sold obedience to God for convenience and cash. For convenience and cash. I suggest to you from that story, from that background, there are three things, and then we're about done. Three things that he fixes for us. He fixed for them and for us. First of all, he fixes distractions. You see, for these folks, convenience, comfort, ease, luxury, having, it, having an easy go of it had replaced obedience. It had replaced the sacrifice of bringing something. We've now bought our way into the kingdom. And before we get on them too much, and listen to me, Americans, before we get on these guys too much, for convenience and cash becoming a distraction, we might want to look in the mirror. It's so easy to get distracted by our comfort, by having things just like we want, by our preferences. It's so easy to get distracted. You know why? Because we are born broken creatures. We're born fallen creatures. We're born creatures in sin, wanting our own way, desiring our own way, thinking we need our own way. And it becomes a distraction to walk in with Christ. Even for the people who have received Christ. He fixes our distractions. Second thing, he fixes our disobedience. The truth is, the truth is, he came and he saw disobedience at a high level. These businessmen, from the money changers all the way down the line, they obviously knew the scripture. They obviously knew what God had said them to do. That's how come they thought they had a market and they did it. And they set it up to be disobedient. Oh, this can't be hurtful because it's convenient. And yet, disobedience rule the day. You see, buying those animals were a lot easier than hurting the animals from home. Buying our way in is always the easy way. Jesus had said, my house is not a house of trade. It's a house of prayer. It's a house of worship. By the way, when I think of the disobedience and distractions... I'm reminded about his remark here about the temple. You tear it down, I'll build it back in three days. And they said it's 46 years. They were focused on that location. He was focused on that location. 
Where are you focused? You see, there is no way, there is no way to be slightly obedient. Do you know what 99% obedient is? Disobedience. Jesus came to fix it. He came to call us. He came to draw us. Jesus was so passionate about obedience that he took a whip and he drove them out, separated them from their disobedience. People tell us today, people tell us today, corporal punishment, punitive punishment does not bring us back to obedience. And all I want to say is it did me. And it did many of you, too. Jesus is a fixer. He fixes those distractions. He fixes our disobedience. But watch this, and we're done. He fixes our disconnection. If you've not heard anything else, that's the last thing right now. Let me have your attention just for the last three minutes. In his divinity and in his humanity... He not only fixed our distractions and our disobedience, but He came to fix the greatest need that you have. And that is your disconnection from God the Father. You were disconnected in the Garden of Eden with our great, 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 great grandparents. And you cannot reconnect on your own with men. This is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. You try to tip the scales in your favor, you're going to lose, and you're going to lose big. Because you see, the Bible says the wages, the payment, the compensation for sin is death. The Bible tells us, the Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. When you were set to die for your sin, Jesus stepped up. Jesus stepped in, and he died. Every now and then, Hollywood gives us a picture of this. I've never seen the movie this clip was taken from. I've just seen this clip. Men being held prisoners of war in Burma by the Japanese. They've been starved. They've been mistreated. When I see this, I'm reminded of the words that my friend who sang here about eight or nine years ago, Gordon Jensen, wrote. I was guilty with nothing to say. They were coming to take me away. When a voice from heaven was heard that said, let him go. Take me instead. I should have been crucified. I should have suffered and died. But Jesus fixed it. And he'll fix it for you today if you'll let him. Let's pray.